everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne. Welcome to the ASCA Podcast. What's up, everybody? Joseph Coyne here. Look, first of all, I appreciate you guys coming on this podcast. I think it's a wonderful project, the ACA, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, has uh, put out. It's, uh, it's allowing us to connect with all sorts of interesting and wonderful people in the strength and conditioning industry, and hopefully everyone's learning a lot. Uh, first things first, if you can do us a favor, go on to the iTunes uh, podcast area, whatever it is, and rate this podcast five stars. Do the same if you listen to it on SoundCloud. Um, however you listen to it, give it a good rating. It would be really appreciated. Um, the other thing is most of you will be ACA members. If you're not a member, get on board with an Australian Strength and Conditioning Association membership. Wonderful pro structure, which is for anybody working in the industry, a lot of support. Wonderful conference once a year. Um, they're also doing other conferences, workshops, there's a journal. Uh, it's, it's just getting better and better. Um, and the memberships are, are very, very affordable. So today we've got Joshua Seekham on, uh, actually Dr. Joshua Seekham is his official title and look he's he's worked at a number of different places, he's been involved with uh, Surfing Australia for a long period of time, um, he was the head strength and conditioning coach there, he was a PhD scholar when I was uh, involved with Surfing Australia doing my uh, master's research, he was just obviously a little bit up higher up the totem pole uh, there, he's worked with the Kiwi Rugby League team, he's worked with the Brisbane Lions and he's now doing work with Queensland Academy of Sport with their Mining for Gold uh, program, which is a really cool program if you're just interested in that. It's, it's pretty cool, this podcast by itself. But look, we talked about some awesome, awesome things. Uh, for the geeks out there or for the sports science people, we talked about some really cool stuff in muscle architecture. And obviously muscle architecture isn't just for the uh, for the hamstrings and uh, hamstring injury prevention. It's also for um, detailing how to get stronger and faster and jump higher. And we also discussed possibilities of basing training off muscle architecture changes, which I found really interesting. Uh, Josh has had heaps of experience with force plates. Um, we talked about some of the force plate diagnostics or the variables he's really interested in right now. We talked about a whole heap of his work in surfing and his research in surfing, including how important it is to be mobile in surfing, um, how much improving adductor strength can help with knee injuries, especially that medial knee or inside knee, and also just actually working in an environment like surfing or in a sport like surfing that doesn't have a history of traditional strength and conditioning, like it's not, it is an Olympic sport now, but it hasn't been an Olympic sport previously, and how he's adapted and changed his uh, coaching practices and, and grown with it, including the use of video, how that really changed his, uh, his coaching game. Um, and there's, there's also some really cool stories from the surfing world. So if you're a surfing aficionado, um, you'll love this podcast. So without further ado, uh, bada bing, bada bam, let's get into it. Okay, we're on the ACA podcast. It's Joseph Coyne here, and I've got the one, the only Joshua Seacombe here with me today. Uh, Joshua Seacombe is a former lead strength and conditioning coach at the Hurley High Performance Centre for Surfing. Um, he was a PhD scholar there. He's worked with uh, people like the Brisbane Lions. He's worked with the Kiwi Rugby League National Team. Um, big props to him on that one. And now he's currently at the Queensland Academy of Sport, joining the uh, the great sort of heritage and uh, production line of S&C coaches that are up there in the Queensland Academy of Sport. So, Joshy, welcome. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. This is actually an in-person uh, podcast today where um, I'm interviewing him live. I've done all the other ones on Zoom, which is a which is an online software tool. Um, so this is a, it might be a little bit better or a little bit worse. We'll see how it goes. But, um, 
Joshy, tell us about how did you get into S&C, uh, what sort of made you want to do that, and uh, where did it all begin? Yeah, um, I guess it sort of came from, I guess, the fact that I was just, uh, I guess, always sort of like the physical contact sports growing up, um, but being five foot, not much tall, um, I guess I always had to sort of find an edge and a way to compete against sort of regular sized humans. So from that, I just really um, sort of got into some S&C and all the sort of different physical preparation aspects for my own training growing up. Um, that's sort of where the, the passion started. Um, and yeah, sort of went from there. Yeah, cool, cool. What sports did you play? Uh, growing up, sort of played rugby league, um, and then had a little bit of a little bit of a crack at field hockey, but kept getting sent off. Um, yeah, and right, then, right. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah um, well, so I tried to go back to league, but I guess just the size just wasn't sure. hadn't quite hit puberty. Um, and then from there, ended up in ice hockey and sort of enjoyed that the most. Um, cool. And then yeah. That was, that was it pretty much. So. Yeah, yeah, right on, right on. Mate, I, so I grew up in New Zealand, obviously. I still have nightmares about these big, big, fat Māori girls chasing me around when I was like eight years old with field hockey sticks when we were in PE class. And I, I haven't gone near field hockey since then. It's a horrible game. I won't have anything to do with it. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, yeah, yeah. Mate, so um, you uh, you played these sports. You got you got involved with S&C from that. What um, then? Then what happened? Like, how'd you how'd you come about to to going to uni, or what'd you study at uni? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess it was always an area I loved, just that that physical prep side and the conditioning, strength, and power aspects. Um, so definitely just played with that, loved it. Um, but at the time, like back in Newcastle, there wasn't really the option to do sports science. Um, so. Just from a financial perspective, it wasn't possible for me to, to move away for uni at that time. So originally I was actually enrolled in engineering at uni. Yeah, right, right. Did it for a week and all that, but just hated it. Yeah. Um, then sort of was like, no, nah, I need to do something more um, more sort of sport-focused. Um, didn't really sort of go down the physio path because I just sort of didn't think of it at the time. Um, in hindsight, it's probably a more stable profession. Than yeah, oh, in. mate, physios have to work much harder and have much less <laughs> fun than uh, the S&C coaches, so yeah, you, might, you mightn't be uh, on, on too bad a track, but yeah. go on, go on. And then um, then from there, as I said, wanted to get into sports, so I went into PE teaching, uh, did that for about oh, six months, um, and then luckily at that time they opened up uh, the sports science degree down at Newcastle in that year, so I sort of saw that and just jumped at it and tried to get involved as quick as possible, um, switched over to that the following year. And um, from there, it was, it was only a new program, but we had some really good people that were leading it, um, like Ben Dascom and um, Bob Lockie. Okay, uh, cool. Sort of running it and, yeah, two really good guys in the field, um, two, probably my two earliest mentors as well. And yeah, right still on. guys I consider friends. Um, right on. Me out a lot. So from there, yeah, I just sort of started that, had the dream of, doing strength and conditioning and that sort of helped set me down the, the path of that. Yep. So I did the three years undergrad, then um, the one year um, honours just as the research project that was under okay. Ben. Um, in that time I'd met uh, Jeremy Shepherd when he just started at Surfing Australia. Okay. Um, and, yeah, had that sort of that thought that was, surfing was a sport that I really loved and sort of it was a bit of a possible avenue. So did a research project for the honours um, in surfing based down in Newcastle, but under sort of Ben and Jeremy. Yep. Um, and then sort of towards the end of that, um, had the opportunity to 
come up to um, the Hurley Surfing Australia High Performance Centre um, to do the PhD under Jeremy and, I guess, just be a bit more immersed in it and um, to start that SNC career. So. Cool, 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 cool. So I'm not too familiar with Ben, but uh, Rob Lockie is uh, quite uh, – well, I know, know of him. Like, he does some wonderful stuff with speed and uh, change the direction and things like that, and I think he's based over in the U.S. now, in California. Uh, but, yeah, he's a, he's a – for anybody listening out there, he's a wonderful guy to uh, check up on his stuff and – and uh, look into what he's doing because he's definitely got his fingers on the pulse, especially if you're interested in speed and uh, in the field and court sports, 100%. Yeah. So, um, mate, first of all, what was the what was the honours on? Um, the honours was looking at, the, I guess, the effect of fatigue from a two-hour surfing training session. Um, yeah. So two hours being, I guess, sort of um, around a typical sort of time that people go out and surf for. Um, and we just wanted to get some metrics on it just to see what the reduction in uh, sprint paddling ability was, um, and also counter movement jump. Um, so being that, I guess that more sort of high end, high intensity effort that is like the time we thought was related to performance. Sure. Um, and we also just got some uh, GPS units on the athletes as well, just to sort of see um, exactly what sort of training load they were undertaking um, at that stage. There'd been a lot of work in time motion analysis, but nothing in regards to um, GPS numbers to sort of coincide with that. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And one thing I forgot to mention in the intro is that, uh, uh, like, obviously, I did my research degree or my first research degree with uh, Surfing Australia and and Hurley uh, High Performance Centre, and Josh was in there. And uh, so a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with, but uh, it's, it's going to be great hearing, especially with my research and my understanding of, of what I did and how it impacted sort of surfing, sprint paddling and so on. It's going to be really interesting to hear what uh, what goes down over the next couple of minutes. But um, mate, what what happened in the in that initial one? Like, it was uh, tell us what actually happened. The outcome of those studies, that yeah. study, that honours. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the first one we sort of found was that from that sort of GPS time motion aspect, the athletes were on average covering about seven k's um, in in that two hour training session, and sure. that was just at a beach break in Newcastle. So, yeah. not even dealing with the points like we've got up here on the Gold yeah, Coast. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, seven k's um, of that. I think about I think it was about six point two of that was um, paddling, mm-hmm. um, and then as well from just in the the sheer number of sort of rides um, performed, it was I think the range was around that sort of forty to eighty mark. So there was even guys yeah hitting eighty waves ridden in that two hours. Wow. So wow. yeah, just a really um, just just high sort of high intensity effort, considering that that's obviously preceded by the sprint paddle as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, it's, it's one thing for. First of all, I'll say Dan Baker at your heart out. Dan's always posting uh, like things of him surfing in Bali with uh, how far he's <laughs> how far he's surfed and how many waves he's caught. Um, but the other thing is like a lot of people don't realise surfing. The majority of surfing is either spent sitting on your board or. At least for the pros, for the recreational people, most of it's been sitting on your board. For the pros, most of it's been paddling or even maybe it's 50-50 paddling sitting on your board or something like that in terms of time time motion. And then maybe only like 5% is actually surfing on the wave. So um, for guys and for wave counts to be as high as 80 waves per session on a 12-hour block, that's a heck of a lot of waves. And uh, it's probably one of the reasons why people – become really good is obviously it's a numbers game and they get better and better from from having more time actually being on their feet rather than just paddling around or sitting out there in the ocean. Um, 
So, mate, the the PhD, you you finished your honours, you, you found like a reduction in uh, the the sprint paddling and the in the in the honours, and then then you came up and, and started your PhD. What happened in the PhD? Um, so, in regards to the studies or the yeah, yeah in the studies in the studies. Yeah, so I think essentially like my I guess my philosophy around the time of doing the PhD was it was sort of that that one where. I guess that initial sort of thinking of S and C and sort of what it means and how it fits and all that. I sort of just wanted to nut out pretty much just like just identify what physical qualities were related to the performances that actually mattered in surfing. Um, I know in sort of other sports like your footy codes and that it's pretty obvious what the perform like what aspects of performance that matter, but in surfing it was still a little bit I guess up in the air and there hadn't been a whole lot um, done. So yeah, first and foremost, we just wanted to identify what physical qualities did relate to performance, particularly for competitive surfing, um, and then from there just figure out the best ways to train it. So I guess that's probably a philosophy I've carried through um, and has sort of been influenced by a number of people. Um, but, yeah, that's just my philosophy is just figure out what physical qualities are going to actually impact performance and improve the ability to get on the podium, and then from sure. there just... Yeah, figure out different ways to train those qualities and get the most out of them. Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. Like, uh, obviously, we all have our own thoughts on how or maybe why people are successful. But if you if you don't actually do the diagnostics or you don't uh, look into it with a little bit of science, maybe you're just uh, farting in the wind. You know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> and not uh, not knowing exactly what's going on. But um, tell us more about the the obviously PhD is a series of studies. Tell us about yeah. like uh, the first project, the second project, what happened in them, um, and how, how it all went down. Yeah. Um, so the first one that we did was obviously just as I said, just figuring out what qualities mattered. Um, so the first study we just looked at um, lower body sort of isometric and dynamic strength, um, and also sort of that power explosiveness aspect. So. Um, we had 20 athletes that were competing either at the World Tour level or the qualifying series, the second tier under that. Um, just had them undergo just a range of, like a battery of testing. So yeah, um, isometric mid-thigh pull, counter-movement jump, um, squat jump, drop and stick, and then just your ant throws and all that. And then at the same time, we had um, both the national coach at the time um, as well as the Australasian head judge just rank athletes just blindly um, for their ability to score highly in competition for either airs or turning manoeuvres. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, just looked at the associations between um, between those qualities. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so the main thing we found was that in regards to the, the aerial side of it, there was, I guess there was trends, but there wasn't anything sort of statistically concrete. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that was a combination of factors, probably, I guess, just buying into the thing that you'd need the physical skills. So there's obviously sort of a baseline physical qualities you need, um, but then a lot of it to do might be sort of more like psychological aspects like risk-taking behaviour or um, maybe gymnastics experience, those type of things. Sure. Um, but I guess the, the one that we sort of found and honed in on was the the relation into um, turning manoeuvres. Um, yep. And what we found was that the peak force in the isometric mid-thigh pull, the squat jump and counter-movement jump, um, all those were um, significantly related to the ability to score highly for turning manoeuvres. Yeah, right, right, right. Because obviously just thinking about it, you'd think if they do bigger airs, they're probably going to be able to jump higher, but uh, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's uh, obviously there's a heap of like getting speed on the wave and being in the right position and all that type of stuff. Is yeah. The technical skill is so, so important there. 
Um, so you use the counter movement jump in a uh, isometric mid thigh pull. Did you do things like a dynamic strength deficit, or yeah. t- tell us what what happened there? Um, it didn't actually. So we looked at um, like eccentric utilization ratio mm-hmm. and a dynamic strength deficit, and neither of those um, showed up anything yep. really. Like it was a bit just a bit messy. Um, whereas yeah, the, that peak force in those sort of three different tests, and that was um, absolute peak force, not relative peak okay. force. Okay. Um, so I guess our sort of reasoning for that was obviously um, what, what, what type of sorry to interrupt. What type of uh, like uh, relative peak force would they have been getting to? Um, uh, generally, I'd say uh, three times body weight or higher. Okay. You, the range we usually found for the surfers was sort of that three to five, three to five times body weight range. Okay. Um, and then we sort of obviously um, Lena Lundgren at the time she did a lot of work looking at landing ability and um, ways to try to reduce that risk of injury. Yep. I know that's a bit of a can be a bit of a topical question, but she did find some really good stuff in regards to the fact that athletes that could sort of score three and a half times body weight or more were a lot less likely to get injured than anything sure. under that. So, sure. Um, and we'd obviously find like getting to that three and a half times body weight. At, I guess for a lot of people would sometimes be a bit intimidating that number, but um, we'd find it was pretty easy to get the, the surfers to that okay. you know, number. Um, but yeah, so I guess getting back to the study, um, I think the reason we sort of found that relationship was obviously uh, because surfing sort of, or the power of turns during surfing is ascertained by how much spray you can throw out the back of the wave typically. Um, I guess the idea just being that the harder you can push through the board, um, the more spray is generally released. Um, and then there's a, that appearance of more powerful. and just, so I just love it. Yeah. yeah cool, cool. And um, for the listeners the, um, the that, that aren't familiar, the eccentric utilisation ratio is basically the difference between uh, – you can do it in a simple way, which is different between a squat jump, which is a non-counter movement jump where you go down the bottom and you pause for a couple of seconds and you can't do any sort of counter movement or bouncing before jumping and, and the difference between a counter movement jump where you start up the top and go down and up and jump as fast as possible. You can look at it for a few other factors. Um, the dynamic strength uh, ratio or uh, deficit or index, um, that's based on your peak force and uh, isometric mid type pull and also on your counter movement jump and it's, uh, you can use it as a comparison um, if you have listened to, there's a Brian Mann podcast um, on here. He talks a fair bit about it, and uh, he actually has, uh, like, he prefers people to get above five times uh, body weight and peak force okay. on the isometric mid type pool. Um, obviously, dealing with different people, he's dealing with American sports and football yeah. uh, mainly. Um, and then also Kieran Young. Kieran Young did the DSI with uh, upper body, uh, which was really interesting um, how he applied that. Um, getting back to Joshy's stuff, mate. Um, ne- next thing, what? So obviously that was the first first part, and then from there, how did it how did it progress? Yeah. Um. So from there, I guess, like the idea being that we sort of wanted to look at obviously, okay, we know that those qualities are important. How can we train that in the best way for these athletes? Um. So obviously there was like the simplistic view in my mind initially, thinking, uh, we'll just do a range of training studies and see how we can improve it and the effect of travel, those type of things. Um, but I guess for that scientific rigour and the university requirements, um, we need to sort of add another element to it, and that's where we looked at the muscle architecture stuff. Cool. Um, obviously, my, so two, my two supervisors was Jeremy Shepard and Sophia Nymphius. Um, and both of them had had some experience in that, so I did part of the PhD looking at the muscle architecture. Sure. So that was just a little, yeah, a bit of an add-on that we thought we'd 
do, I guess, just for that bit more scientific rigor sure, to it and sure. try to get, yeah, a bit more of an understanding of, okay, these adaptations are happening, but what's sort of happening at the, that sort of smaller muscle level? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember going into surfing Australia, actually. I was treating a couple of the guys in there and um, Josh, he had like a fancy ultrasound machine and they're like farting around with it <laughs> and, uh, and obviously measuring like the facial length and the tenacious angles and things like that. But, mate, t- tell us what happened with it. Um... So in regards to the study, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, you can tell us what happened with you farting around. Not just tell me soon, but yeah, did it take a while, did it, to get a hang yeah, of it? Oh, yeah, mate. It took a long time. Like I'd say, three to six months of just trying it on different athletes and even just marking up myself and looking at it just to make sure that you just get the gets just a nice sort of solid image and know what you're looking for. Sure. Um, that was a, the hard one at first. Obviously, people, radiologists spend uh, years at university, oh. right? So uh, yeah. it's not going to be a, an easy thing. No, no. And that was and that was probably something I think I struggled with initially was just, I guess, out of that respect to that profession. Like people obviously spend like multiple years at university learning that, whereas yeah. I was I just doing a bit of a crash course. And we looked at trying to do um, a course here and there, but... Essentially, at the end of the day, it was just to spend as much time on it just till you could get good sort of reliable images. Sure, um, sure, sure. Because I know that that was a bit of a previous concern with um, muscle architecture through ultrasound was just the reliability of it. Yeah. Um, so definitely. So. How, how do they do most of the studies? Like I know I read heaps of muscle architecture studies, but are most of them done through, through ultrasound? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely through ultrasound. That seems to be sort of the, the main method yeah. of doing it. Um, and then... I just sort of looked at some more sort of uh, some more recent work, which obviously had sort of uh, influences from the previous work of a lot of the guys um, in Japan that had been doing it sort of through the um, 90s and early 2000s. Um, So, yeah, Jacob was a guy at ECU that had sort of recently done it, so I sort of followed his methods and um, settled on that, just looking at, yeah, vastus lateralis and lateral gastro. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, just followed his methods and then just spent as much time as I could just trying to, I guess, perfect or get as close as I could as perfecting that sure. way of doing it till we got the, um, I guess, the CV down to sort of about that 5 6% mark. So. Yeah. So, um, and also for the listeners, CV is coefficient of variation and basically it's a uh, it's a percentage of uh, how much your typical error is in a test. So you want it to be as low as possible and like a good marker is, Ideally, you have it below five um, for most sports there, so a good reasonable marker is below ten. Well, most there's there's conjecture about this, but it's uh, it's sort of where where you where you work with. But uh, so uh, you looked at the the lateral lateral gastroc and uh, vast lateralis, and, and what did you find? Um, yeah, so I think well, the first one we did was we looked at um, adult age athletes, so athletes sort of that eighteen years plus. Okay, um, that was sort of our first cohort. Um, and just looked at essentially, we just wanted to get an idea of, um, so we knew that the sort of mid-thigh pull, counter-movement jump and squat jump performance was related to surfing performance. So then we were like, okay, well, what are the muscle structures that are then related to those physical qualities? For sure. Um, so, yeah, looked at lateral gastroc and vastus lateralis, um, at muscle thickness, penation angle and fascicle length. Okay. Um, and then related that back um, to sort and, of performance. So. Okay, and just with muscle thickness, it's not like you're putting a tape measure around the, no, no. a certain part of the muscle. It's done through ultrasound. Tell us, like, when you how do you how do you do those things, or what do they actually look like when you when you're doing it? Yep. Um, so they've sort of been 
um, some sort of different research, but the way I set it on doing it was, um, so for vastus lateralis was just to mark um, from sort of lateral condyle to um, great trochanter, mm-hmm. take 50% of that measure, um, just place a mark there. Um, from there I'd go three centimetres either side of that mark just to get a nice sort of um, cross-sectional sagittal plane view to a degree. Um, and then just sort of taking sort of two images um, from that sort of thickest part of the muscle just on the on that sort of, I guess, sort of anterolateral aspect of the vastus lateralis. Cool. Um, yeah, and then we'd capture that through just a program called Image J, um, which are just – it was almost like a screenshot capture. Yep. Um, and then what you could do is go back, um, calibrate it to centimetres – um, just to work out just to two decimal places how thick it was in centimetres. Yeah, right. Um, and then it also just had a, a way where you could measure the angle just to get, um, yeah, the, the panation angle as well. Cool. Give you that. So we'd get two um, two shots of each part of the muscle we were looking at and then just take six measures from each. So you'd get 12 all up. Yep. Um, and then just average those measures. Sure, um, sure, Yeah, sure. that was sort of the way we... We set it on just to make sure it was nice and reliable. Yeah. And can you explain for the – obviously, muscle thickness is pretty self-explanatory, but can you explain for the for the listeners what panation angle is and what fascial length is? Because yep. those are the, are the two markers that you're looking at, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, panation angle is just looking at the, the angle, obviously the acute angle between um, the, the line of the fascicle um, and the deep aponeurosis. Um, and then the fascicle length is obviously just looking at the individual fascicles um, and how long they are from the deep to the superficial aponeurosis of the of that muscle we were looking at. All right. Um, do you want me to extend on? Yeah, 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 cool. yeah go on to it. Um, away. So, yeah, essentially... I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything to be home for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, essentially, uh, when we were sort of looking at why that may have been the reason why that adolescents tended to get that, so lateral gastroc contribution. Um, we actually went sort of old school and looked at some research from the 70s and 80s. And one of the ones that I really like and I still actually refer to quite a bit now is um, one of studies by Prolutsky and Zaksiorski. So okay. getting real old school here. Yeah, yeah. science of periodization, um, Zaksiorski. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, so sort of from that era. And um, I came across this one study where they sort of essentially talked about like I guess the – the inertia of the proximal and distal muscles during jumping and during force production. And um, there was this really nice sort of excerpt from it where they sort of said that generally during, say, counter movement jump, um, the body's going to want to preferentially use muscles that are closer to the center of mass, so I guess like the glutes and the quads. Uh, but then just because obviously the inertia, because it's closer to the center of mass, there's less inertia, so then less energy cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is like a, an inherent capability of the body. Uh, but then essentially they talk about how if there isn't enough sort of strength or force-producing capabilities at those sort of more proximal proximal muscles, it'll sort of gradually move down like to the more distal muscles towards the foot to yeah. produce that force. Um, so yeah, that was sort of how we sort of reasoned why there was that um, lateral gastroc contribution in the adolescence was, um, and again, this is just sort of speculative, um, yeah. but sort of the idea that, okay, maybe they didn't have enough strength to produce a high level of force sort of in those more proximal muscles. So that's why the, the gastroc was sort of required to help yeah, with sure. that force-producing aspect. Sure. So here, here's a question for you. Um, with uh, If you had unlimited budget, would you use something like ultrasound to look at training adaptations in the muscle 
um, and to dictate what you're going to do next. Like, this is a question that's just come to mind for me. Yeah. You do six weeks of a training program, you look at muscle architecture and you go, okay, this is what we're going to change to now or this is what we're going to keep doing. Would you would you use something like that if, if available? Yeah. To be honest, that was – I remember initially when I had my sit-down meeting with Jeremy and we're sort of going through like, okay, how – like what's the end goal for this? Like, okay, this is like the three years that we're going to commit to this, mm-hmm. um, but sort of where do we want it to end up? Um, and initially I do remember sort of saying that, like, I wanted to use it to help dictate my training program, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, I know that probably everyone probably had that experience with technology at one time or another. Sure, sure. Um, but, yeah, now, I mean, we, we did, as I said, sort of see some trends, but I think I think at the same time, probably in the, like in that, the sport performance world, um, it's probably not necessary from a training perspective because at the end of the day, I, I guess I look at it like, okay, there's certain physical qualities we want to improve to then obviously improve sporting performance. Um, it's just I think it's more important that we get those qualities, not sort of how we get there or making it too complicated. Um, I think there's definitely a place for further research into it, um, but definitely I guess in my day-to-day practices from a strength and conditioning perspective, it's something that interests me but not something that I've used to, I guess, dictate my coaching, sure, um, sure. just trying to. I guess maintain some form of art no. form to the coaching side of it. So. Look, that's great, Josh. I always say there's an inverted due to, to knowledge. You go, you start off not knowing much, and um, and things are real simple. Then yeah. you uh, start learning more, and things become incredibly complex. And then you learn, you start really mastering your craft, and then things become a lot more simple again. And it, it's just knowing to if you're in that middle part of things. Like there's a Bruce Lee quote that is like. When I first began the art, a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. When I started mastering the art, a punch was more than a punch and a kick was more than a yeah. kick. And when I finally mastered the art, a punch was just a punch and a kick was just a kick. Yeah. So um, it's, it's like that type of stuff. No, I 100% relate to that. I really do. Um, so you had, you had what were the, what were the sort, in the adolescence versus the adults, um, what were the sort of like peak forces on the mid-type pool or things like that? That's one thing that just sprung to mind too. Yeah. Um, the adolescence... We tend to probably see anything in that sort of two to three and a half times body weight range. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that would just be, I mean, you could sort of tell just from looking at the kids to a degree. But what I guess a, like a, a sort of side thing that I was happy about was that the kids that would tend to be that sort of three times body weight to three and a half, what we, for the adolescents at the time, consider good, mm-hmm. um, was just pretty much that they played other sports. Yeah, right. um, whereas the athletes that, we're in that lower range, like I guess you're two point eight or less. Yeah. For them, for the most part, like you'd ask them what they'd done sporting wise, and it was just surf, like sure. surf. So, um, I guess that was also one where I guess just sort of helped sort of shape my mind about just ideally wanting athletes that had experienced other sports and yeah. maybe had been involved in running sports or some form of collision sport just to. Get that inherent strength, yeah, yeah. toughen them up a few, a few knocked out teeth yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, but that's interesting because obviously surfing is a essentially it's a low gravity environment. It's just yeah. like swimming, and the swimmers are well known for being uh, for being not being the most coordinated people out of the water yeah. and uh, yeah. not being able to produce that much force. But uh, obviously, they do some training and they get better and better. But no, it's a really interesting, interesting point there. Yeah, for sure. You can always pick a surfer by seeing them run. Yeah, I yeah, still yeah. The first surfer I worked with. Um, he was about 14 at the time. I just remember the first comp I went to watch him at just locally back in Newcastle, seeing him run down the beach, and I was just 
it's an embarrassed for him to a degree, but it hasn't sure. got any better. And sure. <laughs> maybe maybe we need to change run like a girl to run like a surfer. Right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Except for Sally Fitzgibbons. She runs pretty good. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I've seen her run for sure. Very fast. Um, Mate, so uh, you you had this um, the adolescent stuff, and yeah. then wh- how did where did it progress to from there? Yeah, yeah. So I guess we um, from there, obviously those were sort of just cross sectional studies, mm-hmm. um, and obviously with the I guess the nature of cross sectional studies because you're assuming like linearity in the data, mm-hmm. um, it can maybe mask some qualities or um, just sort of skew skew it a little bit. Um, so from there, we sort of done those studies, and we're like, oh, okay, maybe we should just do. Um, just a comparative study. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we sort of went back, retested a few more athletes. This was probably about a year down the track. So um, we sort of, I guess, advanced athletes across the resistance training age a bit more and um, so probably more closer to sort of physical athletes at that time point. Um, and, yeah, we looked at a comparative. Yeah, so, sorry to interrupt. So that's a really good point Joshy makes is that when when they first started working with surfing, it's a, it's a sport that didn't really have a culture of uh, of – outside training or what they did was was very very uh, informal or or not what we would consider the training of a typical olympic sport um so it's it's uh, something we'll talk about later is yeah. um is like working in that type of environment but uh it's just for the listeners out there to to remember that these guys when they first started um if you'd walked in there and seen what they were doing you probably would have gone oh well they're not doing anything fancy at all and it was just the nature of the beast is that you've got to start somewhere and a lot of these guys had no strength training experience whatsoever um, and didn't know a squat from a, from a, from a bench press or, a, you know what I mean, or a pull-up. And so it's a, it's a really good point to just to have in the back of your mind when you're, when you're thinking about a, a surfing and the introduction of strength conditioning into surfing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, go on, Joshy. Yeah, so then, um, yeah, as I said, so then we took another group. I think it was... It was 20 athletes and um, just wanted, as I said, have that comparative study. So just to split sort of stronger athletes and weaker athletes um, or stronger and less strong if you want to be more PC about it. Mm. Um, so what we did with that one, the, had the 20 male um, elite level surfers, um, split them based on mid-thigh pull. So um, considered the weak group as three and a half times body weight or less mid-thigh pull um, and the strong group sort of anything above that uh, 3.6 times body weight. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of looked at those same measures again. So looking at the muscle architecture um, and also performance in the counter-movement jump and the squat jump. Um, and then from that one, what we did see was that uh, the the stronger group had um, greater thickness in the vastus lateralis than lateral gastroc. So that's where I guess it probably confounded that initial study to agree. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, and then what we sort of found as well, so with that increase in lateral gastroc thickness, um, there, there was sort of a, a, an associated increase in the lateral gastropenation angle. Okay. Um, so with that one, obviously that greater increase in lateral gastropenation angle um, means, I guess, the, the fascicles are pointing sort of more upright or closer to 90 degrees. I think it was around sort of range from about 20 to 30 degree penation okay. angle. Um, and with that, obviously, within a given sort of physiological cross-sectional area, um, it just means that there's more fascicles, so potentially more ability to produce force. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what we sort of found with that was um, that those athletes that were stronger, not only did they sort of have those increased physical capabilities and they could produce more peak force in the squat jump and counter-movement jump, 
Um, but during the counter movement jump, they could actually load up more eccentrically, or I guess make sort of better yeah, use of that yeah, eccentric yeah, component. Yeah. Um, I think that's as we were sort of saying before that to a degree that preferential um, that preferential use of muscle architecture. So um, some previous research had sort of suggested that with an increase in pination angle, um, particularly in the lateral gastroc, there's I guess less compliance in the muscle. Um, so I guess sort of coming back to that that sort of research and idea around that during a counter movement jump, you ideally want the, the gastroc to either stay isometric or even concentrically contract. Um, so then you can get a greater stretch on the tendon. Sure, and, sure. Um, stiffness, that sort yeah. of thing. Yep. So that's sort of, I guess that was probably the big finding out of that was that, again, we saw that um, you needed that greater thickness to produce the high forces, but that, yeah, in the lateral gastroc, in the stronger athletes, that meant that they could then sort of go... Um, like a higher peak velocity in the eccentric component um, and also just have what I guess call like the stiffer sort of eccentric aspect. Sure. Um, and from that, we're like, okay, well, if they're stronger, um, they can obviously sort of let their body mass go more against gravity um, and obviously hit that higher peak velocity um, in the eccentric phase. Um, so then the theory was sort of that, okay, well, at that bottom, maybe they're making better use of that stretch shortening cycle and that's what improves their performance in the counter movement jump. Yep. Um, and yeah, again, as I said, what we sort of saw with that is just that that increasing, or sorry, decreasing compliance due to that. Yeah, yeah. So those eccentric factors are better in the with the with your better jumpers, and so yeah. And that's why I want to segue into this is just come to mind like things like um, the Sparta Science and the yeah. Force Decks that really look at some of the new very eccentric variables like eccentric rate of force development and eccentric peak velocity, eccentric power. Um, really, really interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, well, luckily, like, um, as I'm up at uh, Queensland Academy of Sport now, we've got the uh, Force X. Like I said, it, oh, we call this. We've got the Force X platform up there. Sure, sure. Um, so it's been cool just to, I guess, those sort of thoughts that I have sort of had previously had and things I wanted to play with is sort of available to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the the initial one I sort of looked at was obviously the asymmetry stuff, but I know there's some sort of research sort of coming to light now that it's like, okay, the asymmetry mightn't sort of matter too much. It's something I still kind of look at. Um, mm-hmm. Still don't want to see too big an asymmetry. Um, been looking at it more in, I guess, the drop and stick and landing yep. aspects. Um, but then in regards to the eccentric component, um, started sort of looking at, I guess, the peak force at zero velocity. So that, okay. obviously that sort of change from eccentric to concentric. Um, haven't sort of done a whole lot with it at the moment, but, um, luckily, Mark Andrews is sort of up there, and I've had some discussions with him about it. Um, and I think Mark probably probably one of the smartest people I, I know. Sure. Um, every time you talk to him, like just you feel inspired but dumb at the same time. But yeah, so certainly I've sort of been talking to him about is um, I guess the fact that obviously if you can let yourself go against that sort of gravity more during the eccentric component, load up more through the that sort of bottom part or the end of the eccentric aspect, um, then obviously you've got to sort of produce a concentric force to balance that out. Yep. Um, so sort of going off that theory that if you can sort of load up more in the eccentric part, then generally you're going to obviously have to produce that concentrically. And if you can sort of take off with a greater peak force, then generally jump height's greater. So yep. just looking at ways to sort of maximise um, jump height and those more explosive qualities. Yeah, yeah. I really think eccentric, the sort of eccentric training variables, and we've, we've seen it already with like injury prevention with yeah. like hamstrings and, and whatnot with the Nordics, but uh, 
um, some of the eccentric stuff that uh, it's uh, prioritizing the eccentric contractions is really going to be a, a way, and it's not novel, but it's a way, a way maybe we need to go back to it and prioritize it more. And Angus Ross in New Zealand is doing a wonderful job, like with the, I've seen some of their work that they've done, and really interesting how they're applying it. But um, I really think that uh, there's there's avenues there where where we can we can do a lot of good work. Yeah, uh, definitely as strength conditioning coaches. Um, mate, so we've talked about the eccentric stuff. Uh, then was that the PhD? Was, was that was that um, it? What, what else happened? Nah, from that? so I guess from that those initial ones we were like, okay, these are the qualities that matter to surfing performance. Mm-hmm. Um, or just that small part of surfing yep. performance. And actually, sorry, I'm going to stop you. I'm yep. sorry to interrupt. I'm interrupting with too much here. But why would eccentric strength, leg strength be beneficial besides you? We've said that counter movement jump and I mentioned with like pull helps with turning or seems to appear be correlated with turning ability. Yep. Is there like uh, with a weaker people, did they have problems like with bottom turns or did they have problems with turning or? Yeah, I, th- I think. We, we didn't sort of collect any, I guess, sort of what you call scientific data, mm-hmm. um, but probably a lot of sort of anecdotal data mm-hmm. over time, which, I mean, is probably more useful at times. Sure. Or I guess you can act on it quicker, which is the benefit of it. Um, but the things that we did sort of say was the athletes that did sort of lack that strength and eccentric qualities, obviously it's hard to, I guess, draw a straight line between, okay, your strength is poor, so this is why you can't get X amount of height during mm-hmm. an air or throw this amount of sort of displacement of water during a turn. Throwing buckets. Yeah, throwing buckets, as I'd say. Um, but what we sort of did say over time was um, say that the athletes that had quite poor leg strength wouldn't be able to, say, complete a, a five wave, uh, sorry, a five turn uh, wave. Yeah, they might right. fall off at the end. I know Jeremy sort of did a lot of work around that with one athlete in particular. Um, we'd also see that, I guess, the athletes that were obviously not as strong, wouldn't sort of handle those higher training loads, um, particularly when Jeremy introduced the jet ski yep. work. Um, that was obviously like um, like a quite high intensity. Um, what what was the jet ski work? Tell us about um, that. Yeah, so essentially it was, it was like a density training block to a degree. Yep. Um, so, um, so, yeah, Jeremy sort of came up with it and introduced and it's still a practice that they, they use now, even though we're all gone. Yeah. Um, but essentially it was just the idea that, um, as you sort of alluded to before, there's so much time spent paddling and you might be on a, say, an eight-second wave, but then it takes you a minute, a minute and a half to get back out there. So there's that, that work-to-rest ratio is, I guess, more towards the speed end rather than the anaerobic or mm-hmm. um, aerobic type stuff. So the idea being that what would happen is the athletes would just step off the back of a jet ski onto a wave, surf it um, as hard as they could. The jet ski driver then picked them up, take them back out, and the next wave they saw get them straight back into it. So probably working more towards a, a one-to-one or one-to-two yeah, work to yeah, ratio. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, so, yeah, more like a, a density block. And yep. um, we played around a little bit with blood lactate in competition and during the like the surfing training, like yep. both in my um, honours project and um, just during camps and that. And you wouldn't see anything really over about a three millimoles. Yep. Um, whereas what we'd sort of tend to see with those, those sort of density blocks on the jet ski, which would typically be sort of 10 minutes and trying to get about 10 waves in those 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you'd see numbers more up around that sort of 8 to 12 millimoles. Yeah, um, right on. I guess just that sort of, just sort of trying to over-prepare them for what they might experience in competition. Yeah. Um, I guess in competition at those heavier waves where you've got like in Chopes and um, Ta- so in Tahiti and Fiji and um, yeah. Hawaii, where it's obviously 
um, there might necessarily be that high frequency of waves ridden. Um, but if you've got a duck dive, five waves, it gets smashed and adrenaline and that might tweak things. So just trying sure. to, yeah, just make them as prepared as they can be, which typically wasn't easy to do. Oh, there's a massive difference surfing a wave well when your heart rate's been 120 beats per minute from paddling reasonably easy compared to being in uh, conditions that are uh, like a, a ch- really challenging for you. Your heart rate's sort of been pumping above 150 yeah. for a while from from hard work, duck diving, and then also the the sort of fear of the water around you. Yeah, no, cool. That's yeah. that's uh, great. What about um, like eccentric strength with like uh, the bigger waves? We talked about Charles yeah. Tahiti and things like that. Was that something that uh, you guys thought about, or? Yeah, definitely. Um, again, not something we sort of measured to a degree, mm-hmm. um, but it was definitely something that I guess we'd sort of periodised for. Um, it's definitely leading into those those heavier waves, um, your Tahiti, Fiji, and Hawaii. It was just to get more sort of strength, and some athletes um, would even request if we could do almost like a hypertrophy type program just to, at times, they'd want to sort of be an extra sort of one, two kilos heavier if possible. Sure. Um, just because, uh, like, pretty much all the athletes on the world tour would sort of self-report that if they felt what they'd class as too light, that they'd be just almost skimming across the wave, that they couldn't necessarily push into yeah, it. Yeah, right. That's really um, interesting. So, yeah, that was, it was def- as I said, not something we measured, but something that was definitely um, sort of periodised for and planned for. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Mate, that's 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 great information. Um, the uh, getting back to that uh, that last uh, bit from the PhD, yeah. I think we uh, cut in on you a couple too many times, <laughs> mate. So um, what happened there? Um, so we sort of did, looked at doing. It was kind of two separate training studies to a degree. Um, so the the major one was um, looking at the separation of strength training, um, like a gymnastics plyo training intervention. Um, and then also a no-training intervention. Sure. Um, and just due to sort of athlete numbers and um, availability and obviously the fact that I guess we were sort of going into it knowing that it wasn't going to be the best thing for the athletes, we chose to do sure. it um, with an adolescent group. Sure, sure, um, Just sure. A, a local sports excellence high school. Yep. Um, and, yeah, so from that we had them do – it was a seven-week training block. Um, it was sort of sort of split into two. One group did the strength block first, one group did gymnastics and plyo, yep. um, whereas the other obviously did vice versa of that. Um, so it was a seven-week training block, um, a washout of three weeks, um, just due to the school term, sort of works nicely for that mm-hmm. washout. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah for kind sure. of been built. Um, and then they do the, the second seven-week block after that. Okay. Um, and then also naturally, I guess, just being a sport and dealing with sort of high school kids, there was a group that just – chose not to turn up, yeah. um, which at the time I was bummed about. But then in hindsight, I was like, well, it actually worked well because I got to still pre and post test them. So had a, like a no training control yeah, group yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then just get one notes. And that's, that's one of the things with like surfers are one of the most unreliable species running around. Trying to do a research degree on them can be like pulling hair out. Um, we're pulling teeth out. Uh, so yeah, like Josh, in, anybody that's uh, like all the – I did a master's master's research degree, which is like half of a PhD sort of thing, and um, I found it really hard. So my hat goes off to all the people that were there at Surfing Australia. They did a wonderful job uh, um, dealing with uh, dealing with that uh, unreliable species, as we as we call them. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I guess for sort of from the, like the pre and post testing, what we saw with the strength group was that um, the strength group actually increased in strength. Um, and but there, there was a little bit of a sort of increase in um, 
fastest lateralis stiffness, but nothing that you'd sort of class as, say, traditionally statistically significant, but there was definitely a trend um, yeah, sure. towards it improving. Um, but, yeah, we definitely saw with the strength group there was a highly significant to large strength increase. Um, about sort of 0.8 times body weight was the main increase. Yeah, right. And this um, is with peak force on your this is, yeah, mid-thigh pull. Yeah, yeah, peak force with the mid-thigh pull. Um, and then with the gymnastics and plyo group, there was sort of no change to performance in strength measures. Like at all, it was pretty much similar. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, and there was there was quite a lot of change to the muscle architecture for them actually. Um, but then in regards to the jumping test as well, that like counter movement jump and squat jump, there wasn't any change. So what we sort of saw was that with the, the strength group, there was increases in strength but not real much change to muscle architecture. As mm-hmm. I said, a little bit but nothing that was reporting as significant. Um, and it was sort of a flip with the gymnastics and plyo. So there was um, like increases in uh, muscle thickness um, and also pronation angle. Um, but no real change to the, the performance side of it. Sure. Um, and then with the no control group, um, they actually got weaker and there was no change to jumping performance. So that was also a yeah. nice one to yeah. sort of go to those athletes at the end and be like, well, this is what you sort of missed out on from a physical standpoint. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so what we sort of thought with the with the strength group was obviously having that increase in mid-thigh pool performance um, and then a little bit of change in muscle architecture I guess sort of comes back to a lot of research that's been done um, with adolescents in regards to the fact that, well, there's going to be sort of some, say, hypertrophy type change, um, but obviously there's potentially like a high sort of neural component to it. Yeah. Um, that was what we sort of came up with with that. Um, for the gymnastics and plyo group, so they sort of had um, increases, particularly in the lateral gastroc, that were sort of more indicative of like hypertrophy type yeah. training. Um, and at first it sort of confused us, but then when we sort of thought back on it, we were like, well, obviously with the gymnastics, so this was a lot of um, like mini tramp work onto the mat um, where they'd be sort of jumping, so a metre, a metre and a half in the air and then landing on a like a high jump mat. Um, then obviously some like rolls and rotations and different plyos, um, long jumps, squat jumps, vertical jumps, tuck jumps, all that. Um, we sort of said, well, okay, maybe those increases in sort of lateral gastroc thickness and pination angle um, are just due probably to that is like higher eccentric forces they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, so but there was obviously no sort of increase in strength. So whether that's because the test was more sort of concentric, whereas the training was more eccentric strength yep. focused, yep. Um, that might have been a reason. Um, and but and what we sort of did see with the in regards to the counter movement jump performance was the counter movement jump. Just guess as the the actual test, so mainly looking at jump height didn't change significantly, um, but their strategy to produce that jump sort of did. Sure. So they were jumping with, um, I guess like essentially like a stiffer, like a stiffer jump. Yep. Um, so they was jumping with a stiffer jump, so higher peak eccentric velocity, um, less of a counter movement, but they were still able to produce the same jump height. Yep. Um, so we still think that was obviously an adaptation and I know like Soph has done previous work um, where she's found that you almost need like almost like a two-week washout for them to sort of learn that that new strategy. So yeah. they might sort of have that, that new jumping strategy but it might take them two weeks for that to then become an actual performance increase. So obviously to increase the jump height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so that, sure. was, that was sort of the, the main 
finding out. Mate, time. working in track and field, one with like my specialisation for the last 18 months has been yeah. like sprint and jump right and working with high jumpers and long jumps. It's pretty hard to get an increase in jump height regardless, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but uh, also the the change, like this is another thing for any like S&C coach listening is that you don't have to be doing three sets of eight to 12 to get hypertrophy response. It can just be a novel stimulus, you know what I mean? If you've never done jumping and then you start doing heaps of like ankle pops or ankle jumps, you'll start getting hypertrophy in the calf or starting changes in the muscle there just because it's a new thing. Um, and there's a certain amount of volume that'll, that'll start giving you these changes. It doesn't have to be specifically you need to do three sets of 10 on a calf race. Um, so that's, that's another thing to just to keep in mind. Um, it's, it's really cool though. The, uh, all those adaptations and, and how you use those adaptations and when you put them in, it, it begs the question now is like after doing all this research, practically how would you actually train the surface? Yeah. Um, and and then what what did you change from when you started to when you finished? Yeah. So I think we also did like a little, just I guess a small type study. So looking at um, the effect of say combined strength, gymnastics and plyo group, which was obviously, so what we're doing in the, what we deemed as best practice anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of like a little sort of smaller scale study. We did only had sort of 10 subjects to get all those measures across. So we didn't sort of publish it as a, yeah. no, sorry, six subjects. It was meant to be 10, but it was six. So we couldn't publish it as a bigger study. But species, I'll tell you. That's it. So, but that, that's another thing. You try and do research on high level athletes. There's only so many people get to go to yeah. Olympics. Only so many people on the world tour surfing. Only so many people are going to be sponsored surfers. So yeah. you're, uh, you got to do make like make do with what you got. Hundred percent, and um, yeah. So luckily with that, um, we sort of did that that other study, um, just which was pretty much just what we we're doing in practice anyway. So, and what we saw with that by doing sort of the strength gymnastics plyo was you'd get those sort of preferential increases in muscle thickness and pination angle in the gastroc, um, but we'd also get increases in um, like counter movement and squat jump performance and mid thigh pull. Um, so essentially it just sort of came back to that one where um, obviously surfing being a sport where you're peaking every two to six weeks to a degree. Um, sure. Like on the world tour, there's 10 um, competitions um, and you want to perform well at each of those. So, so it just came back to that one where it's like, okay, we can't go block periodization. Sure. Um, we need to sort of, at, at that elite level anyway, we need to go with just guess that, that combination of methods. So that's sort of how we sort of rounded out the study at the end and came into it. I mean, we never really sort of started thinking we might look at block periodization. We sort of flirted with it a little bit, but then realised that at the end of the day, these athletes sort of want to be peaking all the time. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't – it just didn't sort of work. Um, so, yeah, definitely just sort of hitting hitting everything at once was the way to go for us anyway. Sure. And, like, tell us what type of um – Exercise will they do for strength, for uh, for jumping or plyometrics? What would they yeah. do, or for like gymnastics? How would you and how would you fit it in together? Would they do like the jumping plyometrics first and the strength, or vice versa, or yeah. would there be one day of strength, one day of pylos and jumping, or how how would it work? Would it work before surfing, after surfing? Yeah, that's um, it's definitely something I guess it kind of evolved for me probably. Every six months, I'd sort of tweak it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, like obviously Jeremy was sort of there and set the whole thing up and got it off the ground really. So I was heavily um, influenced by him and was obviously one of my well, – has probably been a major mentor in S&C. Um, so I'm sort of, I guess, yeah, heavily influenced by his practices, which 
typically most sessions are sort of, I guess, a bit of a combination to a degree. So to start with a, a good sort of movement prep, which could often last sometimes up to half an hour for some athletes. Okay. Um, going from everything from sort of self-release and foam rolling to um, with some athletes, we give them sort of specific modes and sort of triggers, um, then into just like just general sort of mobility drills um, and then into, I guess, like your lunging pattern and sort of more sort of whole body bracing positions um, as well as some crawls. And then from there we sort of tend to go into some, I guess, low-level plyos, um, okay. probably more like a, like a jump and land focus. Um, yep. Start with double leg and then sort of get to single leg progressions as quick as possible with them, um, just for variety in their training, um, but also just for that challenging sort of aspect and also the fact that that's probably the biggest risk for surfers was even though they sort of surf with two feeders, injuries would sort of tend to occur whenever they'd be loading one leg more than the other. Sure. Um, and then from there, we'd some oh, it'd sort of depend on the athlete, but anyway, from about one to three sessions, it'd have a gymnastics focus, mm-hmm. um, both sort of ground-based, like, Rolls, rotations, those variations. Um, would this be like personal preference from the surfer? Would it be like he moves like a Gumby on dry land? Would it be? Um, oh yeah, it's a combination of things really. Yeah. Um, I sort of my, I guess my view on it sort of evolved over time to where I started to think of it as just another chance to get some sort of high velocity eccentric loadings in because mm-hmm. I'd have a like a heavy jump and rotation focus. Um, also, just a, a spatial awareness aspect with the rotation, that's sort of how the areas were progressing. Um, we'd also um, do like a lot of sort of uh, like eyes closed and Jeremy started to play with some vision occlusion mm-hmm. work as cool. well. Um, my sort of thinking on that one was that um, even though a lot of time obviously you want to spot your landings, a lot of times when they're doing the aerials, they'd obviously be landing um, in the whitewash. So mm-hmm. the whitewash might be sort of exploding up at them. And even though you can be sort of thinking that you're spotting the landing, you can't often see it. Um, yeah. So just sort of also training that aspect to learn how to land and just be aware of your body in air without actually having that visual component of cool. your balance. Cool. Um, and then from there, like, we'd obviously have the Olympic tramp as well. So whether they're working on their ability to rotate fast or to control the landing or um, whether it was forward flips or back flips just to get, I guess, comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Yep. Um, and some athletes I worked with, were sort of renowned for their aerials, but were actually shit scared of heights. So yeah. we just get them just bouncing on the Olympic tramp as high as possible, like trying to get them seven, eight metres in the air so that then if they're going to do a two-metre air, then it hopefully sort of evokes less fear for them. Yeah, 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 cool. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was sort of, I guess, the like the movement prep sort of component we'd start with. Mm-hmm. Um, then obviously it'd be like a – oh, then after that I'd started probably the last 12 to 18 months I was there obviously doing – a lot more sort of targeted hamstring and adductor work. Yep. Um, just mainly, I guess, just for, I just think it's important from both a performance and a, um, like an injury resilience aspect. Yep. Um, and then, then we go on to plyos. So, oh, just lots of different plyos. It's like box jumps, um, drop depth jumps, um, accentuated eccentric dumbbell drop jumps. Cool. Um, yeah, just tended to be sort of, I guess more sort of specific to what we thought the athlete needed at the time. Sure, um, sure. And then, yeah, some athletes would obviously go Olympic lifts. Um, yeah. That was one thing that definitely was sort of pushed heavily by Jeremy was that the fact that they need to produce and arrest 
high load forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that I think he definitely brought into the program, which shocked them at first, but just became a staple. Yeah. Um, sort of shifting that culture to a degree. Um, and then obviously a heavy focus on like lower body strength, um, upper body strength, particularly obviously the pull ups. Uh, Probably focus more from your research. Yeah, yeah. So when when I was involved, the my whole thing was upper body maximum strength and how to fix paddling speed and uh, whether it's still a paradigm. But at the time, it was your your peak velocity and paddle speed is pretty important for for your surfing. You get into the wave earlier, it means you do more maneuvers on the wave. Um, and so pull ups really was really highly correlated with that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, nah, that's uh, it's interesting for sure. Yeah, and yeah, and then um, and then as well, we sort of finished, I guess, with just some cross training conditioning. Um, the athletes sort of surf fifteen to twenty five hours a week, sometimes mm-hmm. more. Yeah. Um, so it's just that one. So we don't need to do any more paddling conditioning because, mm-hmm. as you sort of said before, fifty percent of the time surfing is paddling. So just that wear and tear on the rotator cuff isn't necessary. So we just play around with med ball circuits, um, a prowler different sort of skipping and bodyweight circuits and things like that just for some bit of variety but also just to to push them out of their comfort zone a little bit sure 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 that um no it's really interesting like and i think as a snc coach part of your job is just to fill in the gaps of what they don't do in their sport or what they don't get in their sport um so so you find what they do and then uh, you kind of go well what don't they do and maybe we do a bit of that It's just to give them a bit of a well-rounded thing and, and hopefully it helps with, like, injury prevention and things like that. Um, tell us, we, we talk, you talked about some of the accentuated, uh, eccentric accentuated jumps. If you Would you do that if a person showed poor eccentric uh, variables on the, on the force plate? Um, how would you decide whether you're going to, like, overload the eccentric jumps or was it just a progression that you followed? What, yeah. was, the, what was the thinking there? Yeah, I think initially, initially my thinking, like my thoughts on it initially, I guess, were that it was probably more like a high end progression, like mm-hmm. more sort of down the down the line of progressions. Um, but then I, I have, and it's particularly with the volleyball athlete I'm working with at the moment. I've definitely sort of, I don't think he has amazing eccentric strength, but I'm almost sort of using that now, I guess, to a degree as like a training tool, like. It's that one where, yeah, initially I was like, I'll wait till they've got good eccentric strength and it's almost like a, a one percenter. Yep. Uh, but I've definitely started using it with um, that athlete as almost, a, yeah, as a way to try to get them to just load up in that eccentric component a little bit more and probably just have the body just think about that eccentric aspect. Cool, cool. So what would you actually use to increase the eccentric strength? What what uh, methods, like longer time under tension on the way down or? Um, yeah. And I was probably the most overused phrase in SNC, but like that whole like, it depends one. Um, but yeah, I've definitely started sort of playing with that those sort of slower eccentric aspects, like your three, four seconds on the way down, um, even with a pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as well, I think just just the use of like the specific plyos just to teach them how to sort of handle that eccentric load. Um, I guess going back to like to the sort of um, previous research was that we did was obviously like we found that the stronger athletes could load up more in the eccentric component. So to the degree, I'm like, well, let's essentially just make sure that they have sufficient strength um, and then get them comfortable unloading the body. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my thinking on it is that um, if you have sort of more strength, then inherently the body should let you 
let gravity do more of the work during that eccentric phase. So it's like, well, if you're stronger, the body's not going to try to slow you down or pull you up short out of fear of just injuring itself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's almost that one where I think just getting that, that high and strength is important. Um, and then, yeah, just teaching the body to be comfortable with those sort of higher velocity, higher force eccentric aspects. So, yeah, I guess the way I probably target it is more working on um, overall strength yep. um, and then, yeah, playing with some, whether it's um, like a bit of, say, during a squat, like just pushing down on the bar during the eccentric component um, or whether it is like a slower eccentric phase, but then also using um, like your higher sort of force eccentric um, plyos, so your drop jumps, um, the accentuated eccentrics, um, even tuck jumps and those sure. other things. Sure. Cool, cool, cool. Mate, you mentioned um, the adductors and the hamstring stuff. Yeah. I know you've got a talk coming up. Yeah. Maybe when people get this podcast, the talk's over and done. It depends on our uh, production <laughs> time and it's not the uh, most efficient ship around here at the, at the time. But um, tell us, uh, that's a great segue. Tell us, like, uh, give us a sneak peek into what you're going to be talking about, what you use for yeah. training the adductors, um, or what you found, what, what, what it was beneficial for. Um, what you tried, what worked, what didn't, yeah. and how it uh, how it all flowed into uh, the paradigm that you use at the moment. Yeah, so I guess it initially came about as um, I think it would have been three years ago. Um, we had roughly about eighteen athletes on scholarship at the time, um, and this is at Surfing Australia. Mm-hmm. I think in the space of about a two two and a half month period, about four or five of those eighteen athletes suffered an MCL injury sure uh, i guess it's sort of that one where this is in the knee for the yeah. people listening yep go yeah on. so um i guess it's sort of that one where you could maybe just look and go oh shit, the sport's variable like that's just bad luck um mm-hmm. but we just chose to probably dig a bit deeper with it um so after talking to um jeremy and soph and um also tim brown like the physio that mm. sort of preference he used great gold coast physio yeah been around swimming uh swimming for many years with the australian team yeah a little plug there yeah. <laughs> um and yeah so talking to brownie because numbers blah 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 <laughs> and like out of there there yeah come <laughs> on mate the next time your treatment might be free <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pick up i'll pick up my 50 dollars from tim next uh, next week <laughs> yeah. in the case of beers and, um, yeah, so I guess it's sort of after we sort of spoke about it and I guess as a bit of a team sort of thought, well, what are we sort of missing here? Um, it was, I guess, just going back to sort of basic anatomy and um, looking at the structure of the knee and saying, well, because um, essentially obviously the, the surfing position is easier to describe in person, but um, for this it's, I guess, yeah, like especially on the back foot, um, the knee, like the medial aspect of the knee is probably about, Oh, a foot to 18 inches inside the inside the line of the foot um, and that's obviously loaded at different times and different forces can sort of hit the back of the knee like the lip of the wave or um, anything so obviously there's a lot of pressure on that medial component of the knee so what we did as I said looked at anatomy and sort of saw obviously looking at sort of sartorius gracilis and um, semitendinosus um, obviously forming the goose's foot, so crossing the that medial aspect sure. of the knee. Yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of looked at that and thought, well, okay, maybe because that obviously crosses the that medial component of the knee, maybe it can sort of, if we can get some more strength through that, it might provide a bit of a protective mechanism. Yep. Um, so just sort of went back with that theory and just initially just started playing with one or two exercises here and there. Um, so at first we just got the like the slide board, so looked at just a lateral slide um, with the leg extended just to try to load up the adductor a mm-hmm. bit. Um, then obviously went into some more sort of dynamic 
I guess, like ice skating type manoeuvres. Um, and just sort of did that, I guess, as, as a bit of like a, like an exercise per session or one or two times a week. Um, that was sort of how we started playing with it. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, I guess it's probably like hammy work to a degree where um, like at first, the first weeks just suck, you're sore, can't stand up, can't sit on a seat or a toilet. Sure. Um, but then after that, like you tolerate it pretty well. Yeah. Um, so over time we sort of just started – just incorporating that as just part of our movement prep, um, just having, like, say, a lateral slide, a hammy curl on the slide board, um, just sort of other different progressions with that. Um, yeah, as I said, just that was sort of an extended part of the movement prep that the athletes would do every time they came in. Mm-hmm. Um, we also just bought some little slide pads for the athletes so that they could maintain that on the road sure. um, and obviously use them for other exercises. Um, and then, yeah, this, I guess, got more sort of, more sort of passionate about that area and just started looking at, um, at other versions, so like your isometric hold off the floor, off a bench, um, both sort of loaded. And, and like a side bridge we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those sort of variations, um, as well as just, guess, like a like a lateral shuffle or like a crab walk, um, yep. different ways to load that, band that, so there's some extra resistance. Just sort of trying to hit the, the adductor, um, and obviously also including like the hammy exercises in that for the semi-10, just trying to just hit it in as many different ways as possible, like long, short, um, dynamically, statically, cool. all that. And, um, yeah, just did a little bit of sort of pilot study with some guys up at Bond and found some pretty good results in regards to that in that our athletes, when we looked at adductor and abductor strength, um, our athletes would tend to have like a 1 to 1.1 ratio, so mm-hmm. slightly favouring abduction. And compared to? Compared to like a recreational okay. group. Um, and they were sort of more about that 1 to 1.3, 1.4, okay. um, favouring abduction. Okay. Um, our athletes we found hadn't had any sort of recent history of MCL or knee injuries, whereas in that control group I think it was about the 10% mark. Yeah, so right, right. Again, like uh, drawing a cause and effect. You can sort of make of what you want, but it's one where I'm sort of pretty confident with it. And then also just going back and looking at, um, I guess, just videos of sidestepping and yeah. um, ACL mechanisms, um, injury mechanisms and all that. So. Sure. And for, for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with surfing, is um, your back leg is in a massive, the knee is in a massive valgus position. It's actually a technical thing because it lets you see a gravity goes further over the yeah. board so you can go faster. You, you lift up the back back of the board so you actually go faster on the wave. And um, it's uh, if, if and it's another thing for S&C coaches when they first start working with surfers, and my, like we see it's a, valgus is the devil, right? Um, but in certain cases it can actually be beneficial and uh and then technical things, and it might actually be a technical coaching cue as it is in, as it is in surfing. So um, there's this massive pressure on that medial aspect, and so it's really interesting that the adductor strengthening work and the and the the medial hamstring work actually helps alleviate that, which is really cool. Yeah. Really cool. So that, as I said, we don't sort of have hard and fast evidence of it, but since we started doing that, we sort of didn't have any more issues with that. Um, so. So sort I of hope that it's... <laughs> you heard it, it here first, folks. You heard it here first. Adductor work will solve the MCL problems. We're done. So <laughs> Maybe mitigate, reduce, hopefully. Sure, 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 sure. Um, mate, uh, so we've talked about adductor, we've talked about your PhD. Tell us what you're doing at the QAS now. You're doing some really interesting stuff at the QAS. Yeah, so um, luckily, 
not, I was unemployed for a week and then got the call from QAS and um, they've sort of had this program going for a couple of years, um, sort of in the background to a degree, um, but they're sort of starting to invest in it a bit more now, which is it's called Prospecting for Gold. Okay. Um, so that program, they essentially look at sort of talent transfer athletes, um, so athletes that may have been successful in one sport and want to maybe try something else or um, younger athletes that are competing at a decent level in one sport but might be better suited sort of physically and physiologically to another one um, or, yeah, sort of any athlete that might have been out of the game for a while um, has a desire to get back into it and, again, wants to try something different. Um, so that's sort of the, the rationale behind it. Um, so, yeah, I'm sort of working as part of that program um, both with those talent transfer athletes as well as athletes that um, haven't been yet identified by the NSO. Okay. Um, but NSO is National Sporting Organisation. Um, so yeah. No, no, you go, go, go. Um, yeah, so athletes that haven't been sort of identified by the NSO yet but are on their radar yep. um, and then we're sort of essentially trying to fast-track them to ideally become a part of that national program. Cool. Um, yeah, within that, it's it's been really good just to have some variety in my work. So uh, I think I'm working with, at the moment, 10 sports um, from sort of volleyball, softball, um, equestrian, sport climbing, skateboarding, boxing, uh, some different sort of track and field like a shot put and yeah, discus. Right. Um, and one more that I can't remember now. Hopefully I don't listen so I don't offend them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we'll rock up on Monday after this gets released and uh, it'll only be my uh, my mother and your mother that are listening to this and, and then this one person just happens to listen to it, right? Yeah, cool, cool. Um, mate, that's, uh, that, that'll be a heck of a change from like dealing with one sport and yeah. now dealing with multiple sports. Uh, what are the what are the things that you've taken from, say, the surfing experience Um and obviously surfing is a pretty hard sport to actually do strength and conditioning for because yeah. there was no tradition in it, right? And you had yeah. been able to see what other people have done. What are you taking from that experience and being able to use and apply to working with like a multiple type of sports in an academy environment? Yeah. Um, yeah, as you said, having that variety has been good. It was something like, as we've sort of spoken about before, I, I didn't want to, I guess, get pigeonholed to surfing. Um, mm-hmm. I loved working in the sport, but I said just trying to get just a bit more variety. Um was something I was sort of looking for. So this has been, um, yeah, really quite amazing. Um, I think the biggest thing, I guess, sort of learning from surfing, um, as you said, just being that never had much of a high-performance culture um, before we were sort of there, was just the fact that, I guess, finding ways to explain to athletes why certain exercises or why things we were doing were going to be beneficial to performance was the big one. Um the other thing, so I think sort of from that, a lot of it's probably communication-based, so being able to explain to athletes why it might benefit performance because I guess it's not like footy where it's just that one where everyone squats, everyone bench presses and does that. Like in surfing, it was, I guess, sort of a hard one to come into. Yep. Um, the one thing that I definitely learned from surfing was, I guess, the importance of mobility. Um, I guess surfing probably the flip of, as I said, like the footy codes and other sort of more traditional collision sports in that um, typically the athletes are sold on the strength training side of it, but the mobility aspect's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in surfing, it was probably the flip of that, um, being sort of ingrained in that, that yoga-type culture. The mobility side was something that they were happy with, more than comfortable to do, and the strength training was um, 
something that we, I guess, had to convince them of and get them comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, definitely at first that was a challenge, but in hindsight I'm uh, sort of really thankful for it just because I've just probably spent a lot of time upskilling on mobility and just reading different things and um, I guess just obviously staying in the scope of practice, but just different ways to look at um, mobility and just basic sort of on-the-floor tests. For sure, for sure. I, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you. I think the Western, the, like, and this is coming from, I'll take a step back, coming from working in China for the last few years where just as a culture they value flexibility and mobility a heck of a lot more than what we seem to do here in the West. Yeah. Um, and what the athletes do to promote that is uh, it's really impacted my thinking about how athletes should prepare for their sport. Um, and obviously having a bit to do with surfing as well. I was already kind of on that train to begin yeah. with. But um, this just reinforced it uh, a heck of a lot more. Um, and what I'd sort of consider range of motion norms now for athletes or what I want to focus on for athletes now are vastly different yeah. um, compared to before I went to China. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's really interesting. Um, mate, that, that brings up a really interesting question is how do you actually work with coaches that don't have that uh, background in SEC? Like they don't actually know. What does this bloke do? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, is he helping us with some jumping? Like, what is, how, how do you actually work with coaches that are unfamiliar or they might even have their own preconceived ideas, which every coach does, but their ideas might be very, very, uh, like, uh, unformed, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, how do you communicate with coaches like that? How do you build a relationship? What were the things that you did? What worked well? What maybe didn't work so well in that aspect? Yeah. Um, I think... And with the athletes too. Yeah. And with the athletes too. Yeah. And I think we always sort of tend to find that both with the coaches and with some athletes, um, you just always sort of be riding the roller coaster in regards to that. Like one minute they love what you're doing, the next minute they hate it, next minute they're into it, next minute they couldn't care. So it was always just going through that cycle. And um, yeah, definitely, I guess, had to always just try to find new ways to communicate an idea or. Um, not get frustrated if you had to sort of re-communicate an idea. Um, so, yeah, at, at the time, um, it was – there were times where it was great, times where it was just rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so I think there was definitely like a – I guess like a coach education aspect. Um, like one of the things we did do was just run like a, a level zero ASCA course just to sort of show the coaches, I guess, just – kind of try to upskill them but also just as a way to I guess just explain the, the theory to them and just get them just to see how we sort of approach things um, like sort of any other sport I think it's just spending time with them on the beach just sort of getting to just making sure that they sort of know that you're invested in it and sure. that you actually care about that that cultural aspect of the sport and that's yeah. definitely the, the big one is um, just I guess respecting the culture of the sport yep um, and so one thing we did do with that was, um, I guess one thing I tried to do was in respecting the sport was that knowing that say sometimes the surf might be pumping and just because we had like an SNC session planned, I, I tried not to be too, like too hard on that. Yeah. Um, one quote that sort of Jeremy always used was that, that I've sort of hung on to was the sport's the master and the physical preparation or strength and conditioning is a servant to that. Um, and that's something I definitely try to, I guess, live my S&C practice by. Um, so then actually sort of being true to that and going, okay, the surf's pumping. We don't need to lift weights today and fatigue you for that or make you miss out on good swell. Um, that's what's most important to you. That's what's going to make you happy. That's what you actually 
sure. getting paid to do for a living. So that was a big one, and I know that's something that the, the coaches like respected. Yeah. Um, was just being just flexible um, in that regard. Um, and then other things, I think one sort of a bit of a breakthrough I had um, in the last sort of little bit of time there, the last probably twelve months, um, was just to use um, video as a way to communicate messages. Um, previously, I think just coming from obviously the, the PhD mentality, like graphs and sure, sure, plots sure, and all sure. that, it was like that was sort of the go-to. Yeah, yeah, but then yeah. I guess there's only so much like you push with that until you realise that it's it's not happening. Yeah. Um, my, uh, I guess my sort of my thinking shifted around that where my sort of mentality in regards to communication now is that if, if I've got a, a message to deliver, it's uh, it's my responsibility if that's received or not, mm-hmm. um, rather than going, oh, I've got a message, I tried to deliver it and they didn't listen or they didn't take it on board yep. and going, oh, that's their fault. I think I sort of now approach it that I'm like, okay, like it's my responsibility to make sure they understand that. So I have to provide them with their medium in regards to learning that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, going from sort of graphs and tables and that to visual, so um, just purely say... Give us an example. Uh, an example would be... Um, I think I've become a bit of a pro with iMovie Maker, mm-hmm. um, just in regards to using just a simple split screen. So um, there might be, say, an adductor exercise, so standing um, like a lateral slide on a slide board, just going mm-hmm. into like a deep valgus sort of stretched um, elongated adductor position. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, I'm using that exercise to just get some strength and mobility through the adductor to try to reduce those incidents and severity of MCL injuries. That's my thinking behind it. But what I do is pair it with um, like a surfing manoeuvre where the athlete got into an identical position. So then I'd say to the athlete and the coach, like, okay, see, we're doing this athlete because like, it looks like the sport or whatever. Sure. Um, that, like I always knew that there was a, a physiological reason to why I was doing it. Yep. Um, but just telling the athlete and coach that we're doing that because it looks like the sport. Because I think at the end of the day, coaches and athletes want that that sort of similarity to the sport as much as possible. And I found that was a pretty effective tool in getting athletes and coaches to buy into those exercises. Yeah, cool. Um, cool. And that's probably, so I think, yeah, that, I guess that, that probably, that ability to try to relate to them in their preferred medium is the big one. Um, and as I said, like it, it took a while for me to think of that one. Yeah. Um, but then one day I just sort of had that light bulb moment where I was like, well, these, co- these athletes are purely coached just off video feedback. Like, they're all visual learners. They always say how much they hate numbers and that rather than just trying to push that on them or, like, just meet them at where they're ready to be met at. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's probably one I've taken. And um, definitely with some of the sports and sort of coaches and athletes at QAS, I've tried to employ, a, like, a bit of a similar... Um, mindset it hasn't been as hard a sell because I think obviously in the institute system, strength and conditioning and sports science are so ingrained into sure. that culture that it's not as hard a sell. But um, definitely just trying to create that bind and yeah. build. It. And I think yeah, just the the relationship building like with the athletes. Um, I think just uh, I guess early in my career, I was definitely in that stage where I was like, oh, just tell them what I know and use the fancy words and all that crap and. Like, I don't know, maybe trying to use intimidation as a fact, like intellectual intimidation. Mm, yeah. um, and I know, like, I definitely went down that path initially. Um, but I think as I've matured a bit, not to 
my wife would say so, but I right, think matured right. in some felts where I think, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just, it's, I mean, it all comes down to relationships, really. And I know it's bit like it's probably been said many times, um, but I really do think it is a relationship base. Um, I know maybe a while back the whole, like the authoritarian mindset around strength and conditioning probably was predominant, um, but uh, I mean, being five foot seven, you can't really be too authoritarian. I had to adapt some way, and I think, yeah, definitely the area I try to sort of hammer in on is just finding just common ground. And I think if the athletes know you care and sort of can see that you actually do give a shit about them and want them to do well, that then whatever you are giving them, they're more likely to respond to and buy into. So. Yeah, man, hundred percent. I think you made some great points there. One, you got to you got to show through the hard yards and show that you're actually at training sessions yeah. and things like that, and you're around and they get to know you through that and feel more comfortable. Yeah. They also see that you're in, kind of invested in them. Um, and two, it can be a black cat, it can be a white cat, it can be a brown cat, it can be a spotty cat. If it kills a mouse, it's a good cat, and you just got to find the right cat to get the message across. To them. Yeah. So those those things are like how you use video. I think that's great. Um, like I'm personally, I like I you can tell me all sorts of cues and you can give me all sorts of numbers, um, like coaching and exercise, but mm-hmm. I'm just like a dimwit with those types of cues. But you showed me video of me doing something, and I I instantly. It deserves like a light bulb moment go off. So I, I 100% identify with with that type of um, feedback and that type of cue and why it would have worked so well in that surfing environment, yeah. especially when these guys, they get videoed surfing yeah. so often and so they get to see themselves on film so often. It's it's, it's a really great medium. Um, mate, uh, so so it's been um, – we've talked about heat stuff. I want to ask you, like obviously you're a young guy, yeah. Um, a lot of SNC coaches practice what they preach. Um, how do you train yourself? Like, uh, yeah. um, do you do anything? Like, tell us what you do. Is there anything you consider interesting? Like, do you do any, uh, like, any special methods or any top secret stuff <laughs> or what, what's going on there? Oh, um, no, obviously, do you still play ice hockey as well? Uh, I'm about to start up again. Yeah. And you're playing AFL for a while too. Yeah, I had a double. You, you won the goal of the year on like a, on the footy show <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, on that goal of the year, we um, uh, kicked the what well, we didn't think was the winning goal. Kicked the goal. Thought we lost by a point. Then final sign blew six seconds after that, and then umpires came together like we were all thinking we'd lost the grand mm-hmm. final. Umpires came together. We'd been told it was a draw. They went down, changed the score, and we'd won. So, and then yeah, that's right. how we got the AFL footy show. But, that's awesome. And uh, it was like from sixty out or something, wasn't it? Ah, uh, maybe sixty inches. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it was yeah, nah, ten meters out roughly. But I made the catch look impressive. Had it in a roll. Just yeah, to make it look cool. Tough, but, it wasn't. but yeah, in that game, I actually did my knee, so I sort of haven't done much. For a little bit. Yeah, right. But, Mate, yeah. you need to do some abductor work, I reckon. I have been, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, yeah. Um, but, yeah, in regards to training, I think, I mean, I used to always sort of, well, like, program for myself and go down that avenue and be heavily invested. But um, I think since the birth of my daughter, she's 18 months now, I think you'd probably find the same with the girls being a similar age. It's For me now, I'm just like, oh, whatever I can sort of, get in at the moment um so i guess my training philosophy for myself would be opportunistic um, sure. if we call that um i mean as i think everyone 
two weeks out from the ACA conference, everyone's probably in a bit of hypertrophy stage. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> but no, nah, for me, I just um, I don't know. I just I just try to mix it up as much as possible. Yeah. Um, not so much in regards to like I always sort of keep it within the weight room. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I feel pretty comfortable there and find it pretty accessible. Um, so yeah, I'm always just sort of playing with new ideas in there, just trying to. I guess shifting that focus from pretending you're an athlete to just sort of experimenting with different things and playing with different ideas that you feel might benefit the athletes you're working with. So, sure, sure. Um, and I guess with surfing, I guess I probably got a bit stale with that, but now with sort of 10 sports that I've got to um, prepare athletes for, I've definitely yeah. become, I think, just a lot more, uh, the word is, but I'm just probably using my brain a lot more and just getting a bit more creative. So. Cool. Cool, cool, man, cool. Speaking of young daughters, I don't know if anyone can listen to mine right now, but she's having a good wail in the background. Um, mate, uh, so we're going to go into some uh, quick-fire questions, um, and these can be one-word answers. It uh, doesn't matter too much. Um, if you feel like elaborating on them, elaborate on them. It's, yep. it's cool. Um, but, uh, mate, what's been the, the best lesson you've taught or learned on the job? Um, maybe we've also mentioned a couple of these yeah. too. So if we've already mentioned it, uh, I think the the best thing I think for me is um, I think probably when I after I got sort of booted from surfing Australia was um one of the athletes that I was quite close with um just gave me up like a leaving present which was um just like a calendar for next year and then sort of twelve of the athletes I worked most closely with. Um, like over the last few years, just put like a nice little bit of raw. It was like a photo of them plus like a like a bit of a, a written note. Just and a, a lot of them, like I guess the the big thing for me was that there wasn't really any focus on the physical side of it. Like a lot of it was more, I guess, like say like friendship based or um, helping them through a tough period and those type of things. I think sure, that's probably been I guess probably my most proud moment as a coach. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, like athletes sort of performing well at sort of national and international level events is always um, nice. Like, you always feel happy for them and mm-hmm. feel like you've contributed. Um, but I think, yeah, just getting that that leaving president. I guess, as we were sort of saying just before, that that more sort of emotional relationship side, just knowing that it wasn't just an idea in my head that I maybe sort of had actually had that with at least those twelve athletes. Yeah, um, that's probably been. I think, yeah, probably the the biggest thing for me. Um, and then in regards to like a high, um, I think probably just working into, walking into Surfing Australia that first day and just beginning that SNC career was probably yeah, the cool. happiest time. Pinching yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just not, oh, just being excited but feeling so out of place at the same yeah, time. Right. So. A, I'm getting paid to do this and B, it's in surfing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Mate, um, mate. So we talked about like a, a big high. What about like a like a real lesson you've learnt in the job? What would be the the biggest type of lesson or something you've been taught? Maybe somebody's told you, or or you just picked up one day. Um, yeah. So far. Um. Would it be the video, the matching things with the video, like? Uh, yeah, I think that was probably a. Yeah, that was, I guess, a bit of a breakthrough for me um, and just probably shifted my thinking um, just from, I don't know, probably like just being so inward 
maybe a bit of egotistical thinking at the time to just, I guess, just that was just acting with humility to a degree and just sort of putting it putting it back on myself and not on other people. Um, and then oh, from a lesson perspective, I think, I don't know, just oh, maybe just, I, I think at the top, like at Surfing Australia, I probably just got complacent in my role there mm-hmm. um, and just probably knowing that, I mean, you always hear about people sort of getting fired or leaving S&C jobs all the time. And I guess oh, I'm just young and just comfortable. I just thought, oh, that's, that's where I can leave on my terms. Yeah. Um, and then obviously going through a review process and all that and then being told that your job's being made redundant. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, through that process. It's I sort of, take. Yeah, like so obviously knew it was, like had a feeling that it was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that that bulletproof thinking to then sort of knowing that, I guess just in this profession, it is, it can be pretty fickle and sure. just um, and obviously after like I was sort of speaking to um, like a few people, um, in, like Dan Baker and David Boyle, sort of they were like and Sophie and Nymphius, they were like sort of the three people I guess really supportive yep. to me through that time. Like a lot of people were, but they were probably the people I spoke to most about it. And um, and then Dan sort of had this really good point, just saying that for whatever happens next, just make sure that you make yourself like irreplaceable at yeah. that next job. So um, I think that's probably been the biggest lesson learned for me now um, is just, yeah, just not getting complacent or comfortable and sure. thinking that sort of you run it and just, yeah, make yourself as valuable as you can. And Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely probably my biggest one, I think, so far. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. It actually reminds me, so I interviewed Ashley Jones on the podcast and for people that haven't heard this Ashley Jones podcast, jump on, it's a wonderful podcast. Give myself a plug here, but actually it's a bigger plug to Ashley. But one of the things he does for complacency is, and he's really, he's wonderfully open with everything he does. Like you'll go to a seminar of his or he's lecturing at a conference and he basically just gives you the whole plan for the last year that he did. Like I went to one in maybe 2009 or maybe it was 2007 where he just gave you the, all of the Crusaders training plan, yeah. like everything he did. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the strategies to go, I'm going to give everything away so it makes me continually be on my toes so people have what I've got already okay. and I need to I need to keep coming up or keep making what I'm doing right now a little bit better to stay ahead of the pack. Yeah. Um, so it's it's like uh, one, he's doing it for the benefit of the S&C industry, but he's also doing it to keep himself on his toes, yeah. um, which I really loved. I thought it was a, a great idea. Um, mate, uh, speaking of seminars and lectures, yeah. obviously you would have been to a few. What what springs to mind as the best takeaway from one you've been to? Like one you could just take, you went to a seminar, who was it with, and you just got something in that seminar you could use the next day? Um, I think, I mean, I always get something out of everything. The big, like, I think the one that probably, it was probably also due to the timing of my career, but the one that probably hit me the hardest was um, oh, a few years ago down in Melbourne when the ACA conference was at the MCG, mm-hmm. uh, when Nick Winkleman presented, just, I guess just the energy presented with and sort of coached with and sure. all that, that was something that I sort of found, I guess, just inspiring. Probably, yeah, the energy he brought, but also just the clarity of the cues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably been yeah, the yeah. one that I think stuck with me the most is, um, oh, I mean, talking to any of, like, my family or whatever, they'll say whenever I'm telling a story, I provide every last little bit of detail in regards to the context of mm-hmm. it. Um, so, yeah, just being able to, and I'm probably just doing it right now, but um, 
yeah, just that sort of clarity and sharpness of the cues and not um, confusing things. That's probably been the biggest thing. Sure. Stuff to me, just don't complicate it. At the end of the day, I think you're always going to have a, an image in your mind of what a certain exercise or drill should look like, um, but just giving the athletes that sort of basic external cue and then letting them feel it out for themselves um, because obviously you just train that, that athlete like an individual and here's the external cue, sort of go do it in your own way but do it well sort of thing. That's sure. Yeah, that's been the biggest one, I think. No, no, and that's a wonderful presenter. And, like, to be honest, that presentation, I went to the same yeah. same one, that presentation was the reason why I ended up working for Exos yeah, um, was, was from that. That set things in motion. And, like, I was like, wow, this is, I want to learn this stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, wonderful presentation and a wonderful presenter. Obviously at the forefront of uh, coaching styles and learning mm-hmm. and instruction and so on. Um, but a, a really good strength and conditioning, especially a speed coach too, yeah. um, former track coach. Okay, uh, mate, um we have talked about a fair bit of stuff. Let's talk about, um, and S&C coaches love doing this, what is the best performance that springs to mind, A, in a competition, one of your surfers, um, and B, in training? Yeah. Um, best performance from one of our athletes would probably be uh, – Two years ago at Snapper, Stu Kennedy was um, just an injury wild card. It was actually when B. David broke his pelvis, mm-hmm. um, which was obviously one of our, like it was probably one of our main athletes, has yep. been um, for a number of years. He sort of broke his pelvis at the last event. Stu was next sort of injury replacement and just got a chance to surf in that event. Um, so I guess it was his chance to sort of show the world what he could do. Um, and ended up sort of making the semis and just like absolutely just destroying it. And um, that's probably the best performance I've seen from one of the athletes I've worked with. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, Stewie's like a great guy, interesting character, but just to see some, like he just, I don't know, it was just seeing someone just knowing that they're up against it um, and that they were like massive underdog, but just like he just had confidence in himself. Like he just knew, like he knew that he was going to do well yeah, and right everyone right. else was doubting him, but. The saying, I guess, just the, the the power of psychology to a degree. Oh. Saying if you put your mind to it and just have the confidence and just know you're going to do it and do anything to get it done. That how, was, yeah. how good is it when an underdog comes through like that? Oh, like, yeah. I, I, I remember like back in the day when Parco won uh, Jay Bay as a as a wild yeah. card, like stuff like that. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. really neat. Really neat. Um, and then in regards to training. Oh, oh, to be honest, like you just in the training environment, you just oh, in the SNC, not so much like it was. I guess there's nothing so much that's blown me away other than just seeing footy players bench like 180 kilos and whatever. Yeah, like yeah, I right. find that impressive. But in regards to the training environment, I think you'd oh, in surfing, you'd see it like a lot of time and for different athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, not anything like not. I mean, because obviously you've got some athletes that were just super impressive aerials. So seeing, yeah, yeah, um, t- tell us about that. Like, were they busting? Uh... Yeah, one was uh, Chipper Wilson just down the road here. Mm-hmm. Another actually um, just saw him do like full three sixty and land in the barrel and then get barreled for about three seconds and come in. Like <laughs> yeah, that, right. just, that blew my mind. Um, and then just other times, like I mean, probably the, the biggest one, probably most emotional one, was um, when Bede sort of had come through his rehab from a busted pelvis, um, like obviously pretty severe 
injury home, we really typically see it in car accidents. And Sure. How, how did it happen too? Oh, so he just, he went to take off at a wave at um, Pot and just got sort of, he came sort of halfway down the face, his fins sort of just, board went sideways and flipped on him a bit, just got stuck in the lip and driven down yeah, into right. the reef into probably only two foot of water on a, about a four or five metre wave, just yeah. landed straight on his pelvis and just sort of, um, what they call an open book fracture, so just blew apart oh, both sides of massive amounts of internal bleeding and yeah. um, all that. So an injury that, like, there was a risk that he wouldn't have survived it, let alone function highly, let alone compete at the elite level. Um, so I think just sort of through through the training, sort of more so in the surf, like in the S&C side, we just do just basic progressions, just trying to get him um, just back to normal function, let alone performance. But then just seeing him... Um, sort of come out the other end of that about eight, nine months later and get back surfing and then um, to a point where I actually think his surfing seemed to get better um, yeah, right. through that time period, which sounds weird, but he did. He spent that year off sort of coaching um, John John to the world title. Yeah. Um, I think through that process just maybe looked at things differently and, yeah, like he just came back honestly looking sort of better performance-wise. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. in regards to training, that was probably the big one was the first day to seeing him really – just get into it after it, like a career and life threatening injury. That'd be the main sure. one that stands out. Sure, that'd be cool. Definitely, definitely, uh, definitely something that would. Um, like, and you start you you go on the ride with the guys too. Like oh, when the, yeah. when they when they're injured or they're not doing good, you're like you're it reflects on or doesn't reflect on you, but it's um it's you, you share that ride with them for yeah. sure for sure. Um, you share that wave with them if we want to use a surfing analogy. <laughs> Um, mate, um, okay, uh, last sort of question. You've got a really good intern, um, comes along, works there for a little bit. Um, they're going to leave besides getting them a job or getting them drunk on their last night, yeah. getting them a job and a hangover. What are you going to, what would you give them as a gift? What would be your, your thing comes to mind, strength to mind? I'm going to give this person a gift, um, industry related. Uh, what would it be? I'm thinking on this one. I couldn't sort of. It's a tough one, I think. I mean, obviously, like say, like a, a physical gift, I think, could be just dependent on the, the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in regards to like a An gift. An ultrasound machine? No, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to burden with that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think just as, uh, as a parting present, I think it would just be, I don't know, just trying to give them just confidence to a sure. degree. Um, and also... Just confidence and just that ongoing support and just letting them know you that they've got your back. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, like, I've been, like, super lucky um, in regards to, like, mentors and everyone that I've had. Like, everyone's always been, like, so open and willing, um, has always helped me out, has always just been, I guess, just that whole, like, non-judgmental, non-egotistical, um, like, yeah, like every sort of mentor or person that I've sort of leaned on for support or advice is just, always just been amazing and I think mm-hmm. that's probably that's something like, I want to sort of pass on to a degree is just that same willingness to share and care and just be open and just help out whenever you can. Yep. Um, like especially now, probably in this, like the last six months, obviously just going through that sort of what Boyley says makes you a real SNC coach when you get booted from one place. So, I'm sort of going through that process myself now and just, Realizing how much you do sort of 
lean on other people and sort of need support and things to talk about. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest one. And I think just obviously the nature of the SNC industry is it can be pretty cutthroat. So just sort of making sure everyone's got each other's backs to a degree. Yeah, 100%. I know it probably sounds a bit misworld, but I think at the end of the day, just being, yeah, just that cutthroat thing. And I mean, it's obviously a small industry, so yep. just that support is, yeah, the biggest thing, I think. Yeah, it's appropriate time to give actually a plug for the ACA Pro Structure, which is a, yeah. a wonderful part of the ACA, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, where basically they have a lawyer on on hand if you if you have any disputes with an employer. There's a there's a rating of, of where you stand and what you should be earning based on where you stand, and like that's that's part of um, the industry or the profession as S and C coaches uh, improving themselves mm-hmm. and. and uh, and not falling for like a like Joshy saying a cutthroat a cutthroat dog eat dog type yeah. world, um, mate. Uh, so yeah, wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. I've I've uh, really enjoyed it, and um, we've like I've I've learned the truckload, um, and I'm sure the people people listening would have uh, would have got a heap out of it as well, um, mate. If they want to get more information, like uh, where what what would they do to get more information? I know you're you're on Twitter. Um, there's ResearchGate. I had a I had a flip through all your stuff on ResearchGate. Um, is there, are those the main sources? What what do you reckon? Yeah, that's pretty much the main sources. Yeah. Um, just either that or through through my email address. Um, my email address is probably the one I check the most. Twitter, I kind of use it for news stories and occasional just and also just picking up research articles. I'm not, it's it's wonderful for picking up research oh, articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really just, is. Yeah. I've, I reckon most of the papers I read now is something you've just seen flicking across mm-hmm. that. So, but I'm not super active personally on it. Um, yeah, ResearchGate. I guess all the, most of the publications are up there, and where possible, I try to flick out the papers that people can't access. Cool. Um, and yeah, that's about it. My personal, my Instagram's not in any way a business thing. It's just personal photos of my dog and my daughter and. Yeah, right. So if you want to check out Josh's dog and daughter, go on Instagram, everything else, Twitter and research, okay? Yeah. All right, team. Uh, so that's it. And uh, look, like I said, I had a wonderful time. learned a lot. And uh, yeah, thank you for Josh for coming on. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Okay, guys and girls, that's it. It's a wrap. It's over and done, done and dusted. So I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed talking to Josh about, especially some of the stuff they're doing at Surfing Australia was uh, was really, really cool. And also his research was, was quite interesting, I, I thought. Um, like I, like he said, find him on Twitter and ResearchGate. Get a, get a look. If you are interested in his research, I highly encourage you to read some of his articles he's put out from that research group at Surfing Australia. Um, also, remember, if you're not a member of the ACA, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, make sure you get involved. It's, like I said, it's very, very affordable to become involved or become a member of the ACA. Great certifications, uh, great memberships, great pro structure if you're a professional, journals, and it, it caters for everyone, not just strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, um, sports coaches, any sporting uh, support staff member would be highly encouraged to do do this certification. So that's it. Um, I really hope you're enjoying these podcasts, guys. I'm really enjoying them, and I hope you're uh, you'll be listening to our next ones. Thank you.